Hello, and welcome to the UX Usability Podcast. I'm Dr. Chris Parker. Tonight, we are joined by Grace Francis, Chief Experience Officer at Drogo5. Now, you may not know Drogo5 from the name, but they are one of the chief advertising agencies in our culture today. You might have seen their adverts on TV, on billboards, or even on your Facebook feed. Around the time Game of Thrones' final season, they were responsible for the massive For the Thrones theme. Think of the, um, the Man Mountain killing the Bud Guy, and you know where we're going for. They've done incredible work, and it's an absolute honour to just talk about what is UX design, what is the advertising, and where we should be going as designers in the new future that we're living in. So sit back and enjoy what is one of the best interviews we've had this season. So, Grace, how are you doing? I'm really well. Yeah, thank you. I think I've spent most of my lockdown recognising I'm a bit of a house cat and mm-hmm. uh, I'm thriving in my own environment. Mm-hmm. So um, you are Droga 5's first um, the chief experience officer. Would you say CEO? Um, we, we see CXO, yes. CXO. Uh, it's, it's a relatively new title uh, and I have a few contemporaries, but uh, it's working well for me so far. Mm. So has there been a shift in industry um, away from old models to new models or is this just a part of natural evolution? I think it's hard to say. I think, you know, I'm I'm coming in uh, from a point of the creative industry and the creative industry traditionally solves interesting problems with lateral thinking, connecting with culture and what culture is asking for. Uh, but also I come historically from a design thinking background and where we're solving wicked problems uh, through similar leaps of logic. And one of the most interesting things I think has been, uh, you know, creative agencies are often praised for their ability to reach solutions that aren't found by logic alone. So uh, the combining of uh, creative lateral thinking and the robustness of uh, design practices, UX, and um, even design thinking fit together really well uh, to answer a problem um, or challenges that our clients are coming to us more and more for. So can you give me an example of the kind of problem that logic alone can't solve and how you'd go about tackling it? Well, it's interesting. I think logic probably can solve it. I think it's just that we want to be free from the constraints of, of thinking in those paths. So a lot of what I've seen recently in the last year or two is uh, clients of ours coming to us for big, significant cultural problems, cultural problems that would normally be um, taken to by a scaled consultancy. This might be about business design. Uh, it might be about um, you know the very edge of uh, CX. And I think one of the things we've experienced in, in lockdown is um, consumer experience uh, for brands can suddenly represent uh, keeping people safe and well. Uh, I think it's really interesting that uh, if you have your um, if you have your food delivered to you by a provider like Ricardo or Tesco, uh, then they determining giving you service could literally uh, decide whether you are safe when sheltering um, or exposing yourself to a virus. And that's something nobody expected to find when you, you work in logistics. So a lot of what we're seeing now is is having those big, exciting problems. So uh, in recent years, I've looked at questions like, um, you know, how do we how do we protect a brand like Canon cameras when they're going to exist for another hundred years, we hope, 
but photography has been democratized by our mobile phones. And mm. in that, a creative agency will be asking, um, you know, are we innovating? Um, are we changing the product? Are we changing uh, a model from selling to renting? And the freedom of that lateral thinking a creative agency provides just allows us to move in leaps and jumps, to put a pin in feasibility. Now, you have to come back and take that pin out later, but uh, it really is a very interesting way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So think about uh, changing how we think about brands and you know responding to issues like COVID or technology changes. Is this all about the story we're telling about the brand? It's all that public facing image or is it changing the brand itself and how the brand's operating? Well, I think it's both. I think we're living in a very interesting time that a 10 year old uh, knows the name and the face of the person that runs Amazon. Right. So it used to be that we might know a few CEOs and uh, now we are recognizing more and more the role of uh, running a company and even being on a board of a company is a very public facing space. So how brands present themselves to the world is more important than ever. How brands continue to pivot and live through that brand purpose and identity uh, is something that we are challenging continuously. And I think a, a, an organization that is willing to change is looking equally at how they present into the world today and what that frontline consumer experience actually becomes. And everything becomes about how we interact with, as individuals with organizations. Mm. So would you say you got great parallels between UX design and service design in what you do? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly right. And again, you know, both are applying uh, these these two core tenets of empathy and investigation. And I found that actually runs through absolutely everything we're doing. And the further I continue my practice, the more I like to encourage the people I work with to just recognize within sitting in a room together, you are a smart person solving a problem. And uh, breaking down that disciplinary uh limits to say, okay, this is where service design ends and UX design begins, really helps us carry through and represent uh, our end users. Mm. It's really interesting to hear you say that because um, empathy, if there's one thing that makes design work amazing, it would be empathy. Um, but not everyone has as much of it as we'd really like. Is there anything that you do to make your team more aware of other people's feelings or increase their empathetic intelligence? So it's a really interesting question. And I think underneath that sits the idea of, you know, how, how do we gain empathy in the first place? And some of that comes through identifying privilege. Uh, I've spent a lot of time talking to teams at Hyper Island and asking, um, based on people's intersectional identities, how much do we understand each other? So um, as a straight, cis, white man, um, you are walking through the world with such a huge amount of privilege um, that how do you recognize what that means um, to be anybody else and to design for anybody else? Um, as an extension of that, we also think about the moments that we're in. Um, you were telling me a few moments ago, you're a father. And if we take, um, you know, we take the experience of uh, using, uh, using an app to talk to a doctor, using something like Babylon Health, uh, what that experience means for you if you have a fever and it's uh, 10 o'clock on a Sunday night versus what that experience means if your child has a fever at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night is radically different. Your ability to use the interface to make rational decisions, to prioritize and triage, all of that is changed by the moment that you're in. So 
I think really we're looking at two things. We're looking at recognizing where we exist in the world and our view of the world itself, and then also recognizing the context of any given experience and how well people can perform within that experience, how well they can think, um, how prepared they are to um, be able to engage, uh, how much focus and time and attention we can offer. Mm. There's can't be a sort of uh, overnight change. It has to be something you develop over time, I suppose. Yes. But I mean, the, the original question you asked was, you know, how can we learn to apply empathy within teams? And, and some of that is putting people in those situations the best that we can. So obviously we can observe, we can interview and research is a huge part of what we do. But I think what becomes really interesting is trying to allow people um, to sit in those experiences themselves. Um, and that's where we sort of move into sort of an ethnographic kind of space but it's um applying different tools to uh, allow ux designers and designers holistically to consider the needs of their users is is a uh, it's the very core of what we're doing now the other thing is to have a diverse range of ux designers at your disposal hmm. so grace maybe people might be wondering what exactly a chief experience design officer is i've already butchered the title there um <laughs> you like so how do you think your family would describe what you do for a living? Well, that's interesting. So um, uh, I was born in the 80s, so my mother was like a post-war child uh, growing up in the 50s. And today, as someone in their 70s, um, I think she experiences my role as um, forms of communication, being able to resonate with other people. And I think that's actually a, a completely valid definition. What she sees is me tackle a challenge and um, mediate that solution. I think to her, it almost appears like negotiation. Um, I look at my peers, my siblings, who are around about 10 years older than me, far more fluent with technology. And I think what they're seeing is um, the convergence between communication and design, informing people and then uh, changing. Uh, so informing people, giving them an opinion, and then looking at seeing if we can change the results of what they're choosing to do. And for me, this is really what becomes very, very interesting for us. I, um, you know, I chose in the last five years to focus my career in a creative and advertising space, uh, partially because the industry is in such a moment of flux. It allows us to be braver and bolder and do different types of work. And, uh, you know, Droga 5 is an excellent place for interesting, different types of work to exist. And within that, I think the deeper question becomes, um, what exactly can we do with these tools? So uh, my job sits in a space between um, marketing and design. So if we look at brand experience, we're thinking any moment that an individual comes into contact um, with an organization and what that experience is, what's the um, consistent emotional resonance, um, has there been a clear um, connection between the organization and the individual? This becomes particularly exciting when we consider that in some respects, talking to a human being is the new luxury. Uh, mm -hmm. So being able to access a human um, when you're talking uh, to your bank, um, when you're talking to a medical professional, um, but also when you're trying to return a mattress. Yeah, I, I had the experience the other day with um, Fitbit. Mm. their official customer services with twitter so you know you send them a message and they just bot you back this most generic statement ever you're thinking i just wish there was somebody making a mistake rather than a machine pushing back at you so i totally understand what you say about people being a premium in today's life yeah 
and one of the interesting things that I think has occurred during lockdown is, uh, you know, we're very, we're far, we're far more vulnerable because of the situation we're in. And normally a screen creates a barrier between us, but that vulnerability means that we're looking for authentic connection. I called my bank the other day and um, the person I was talking to was saying sorry because their cat was meowing in the background. <laughs> and, you know, I'm at home. We want to represent, uh, you know, that I want to let you know that all of the information is entirely secure. Uh, and uh, But I am working <laughs> in my house and I'm sorry. You know, it's not our brand to hear the cat meowing in the background. And I thought, no, it really is. It's fantastic mm. because what I'm doing is suddenly talking to another human being. And um, the need to be able to connect and um, feel like something is uh, real and vulnerable and authentic uh, is exactly what we need right now. And I, I would argue probably one of the most important things in the human experience is to feel understood and to feel like an, another person has uh, authentically connected with you. Mm, Grace, that's a really great insight. I can relate to that with um, my day job as a lecturer in design at Left Uni we've had to move on to online teaching and online supervision with our students. And it starts off with like, oh, I'm in my home office, there's baby screaming, there's baby clothes scattered everywhere and chaos. I think, oh, that's gonna be terrible. But actually all the students have really liked being able to see into our little homes and realize that we really are people. But um, it sounds like what you're saying with, um, I know you work, more about communication than technology, it sounds like storytelling is a very important part. Yes, I think that's entirely valid. And I think we're constructing narratives uh, to present information to other people and, of course, to convince them of a point of view. And that ability to tell um, a clear and compelling story sits at the cornerstone of advertising. But it's also exactly true when designing products. Um, we're holding the hand of the user and uh, we're guiding them through, we're walking them through the woods. And sometimes that's on something very significant uh, and sometimes complex. You know, that can be helping someone fill out their tax return um, to correctly fill out uh, medical insurance information. And sometimes that can be on something entirely frivolous. It can be, um, you know, ordering food for a meal out. But uh, that equally is valid because we're we're creating experiences and we're creating uh, moments to engage. And uh, one of the interesting things I think we've seen recently is, again, uh, the desire to see organizations as brands, not as corporations. Mm, that's really great. So what about what you said a second ago, Grace, about how you chose to enter the advertising world? Um, how do you get started in the world of design originally and what have you learned along the way? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's been an interesting story. So I um so I worked for a media group and uh, we were pitching to a client for not actually that much money. It's quite a small organization and I was in my early twenties and we won the pitch. And I realized when we won the pitch that my boss hadn't checked our work. And being young and precocious, I thought, okay, forget this. And I ran off with two other women and started a really tiny design studio where we were offering um, specific return on investment to build campaigns out for uh, charities and um, groups that were politically lobbying. So um, we were our first client with a big issue. And uh, still to this day, uh, one of the proudest things is, is creating a, a fundraising system for them that had uh, John Bird cry. And since then, I've just been trying to keep making people cry throughout my career. <laughs> but uh, 
so that that was a very exciting moment. And then um, we grew that. And it's interesting telling the story because you can't tell it without showing more vulnerability and personal sides. I did that for a number of years. And then um, uh, in my mid 20s, I was diagnosed with cancer. And um, I'm completely fine now. Uh, but at the time, it uh, knocked me off path. And one of the things I think that happens when you question your own mortality is you look at the roots of where you come from and what's important to you. And I, I grew up in a very uh, poor household. And um, when facing my mortality and coming through it, what I realized was I felt the need to secure um, my finances more. And so I stepped away from that business and um, I went to work in the city um, in, in UX design and content and, and went to um, work at a very scaled organization uh, dealing in um, financial trading betting. And it was a very interesting experience because it was very hard-nosed, it was very analytical, not much room for um, ethnographic or instinctual or anecdotal evidence, and uh, actually tried to bring all of those pieces in, uh, which was absolutely incredible and a really interesting experience because, again, um, our audience, our stakeholders were very, very specific types of people um, who dealt with um, decisions that sometimes were on a conscious level and sometimes not when you're trading, you know, you're making decisions second by second. Uh, and uh, so actually bringing in a more holistic ethnographic view when they learned to trust us worked incredibly well. So I did that for a number of years. And um, ultimately uh, I moved to uh, an original.com. Um, I worked at uh, lastminute.com for a number of years. And that also was very, very interesting because it was taking a complex challenge and uh, working closely with analysts uh, to look at the insight provided and make changes on the go. And that's an incredibly exciting and powerful feeling, I think, for someone in a UX design career path to watch uh, something you implemented be successful or not successful within hours and also recognize the um, financial implications of that decision. Uh, so it really allows you to fly by the seat of your pants. And um, I think for people listening to this, they'll either be resonating with it completely or if they don't work in our world, they'll think, wow, I'm not going to invite you to a dinner party. That sounds incredible. <laughs> but uh, it is interesting. And then um, from there, I really decided to move to um, agencies because I recognized that what I was looking for was um, the new energy of continuous challenges. And working agency side uh, is very exciting because you have to throw yourself into a world that you know nothing about, become an expert, and then um, with as much humility as possible, present your findings back to someone who might have worked in that uh, industry for their entire career. And that to me has been um, incredibly exciting. I started off in uh, tech and digital agencies and then moved closer and closer uh, to creative agencies, really because that storytelling part and that um, true empathy and resonance with what was happening in culture was just too seductive. And uh, today it's really informed my design practices and I'm very, very grateful for having um, had the experience of understanding how these two worlds can fit together. Hmm. Do you feel like one world dominates the way you think? Is it more creative side or is it more analytical side or... Are they constantly uh, working in harmony? I think what I've realized is over time, um, I now have a much better understanding of brand than I did when I walked into this world. Um, I used to be very much about um, the tangible and the logical, the measurable. And 
I found myself giving a speech to someone the other day about the importance, the importance and the resonance of um, brand identities and brand purpose. And I stopped myself about a minute in and said, I'm so sorry. I remember someone giving me this speech when I joined this industry five years ago and thinking, this is rubbish. This is absolute rubbish. This isn't something tangible. And for me, actually, it's the alchemy between the intangible and the tangible that fit together. So um, I would be very interested to know uh, what old colleagues would think of me now, because I've very much blended the two together in harmony. And I, I feel that has enriched me deeply. But um, purist designers, I think, would certainly at times be tempted to turn their nose up at uh, some of the information and insight I'm bringing into my decision making now. Mm. What kind of information and insight is that? So I think it's about um, how we engage with culture and how um, how important that is to our identities, how we present ourselves and how we authentically privately identify and mm. recognizing the influence that that can be. Uh, sometimes it's shocking to acknowledge that uh, I used to give examples here, but I now recognize anybody can be your client tomorrow, so I won't give examples, but <laughs> I recognize that a product can do well because of the brand when the product itself is not only uh, average, it's actually poor. Mm. And scroll on, you want to say something? No, I, thinking, um, I don't have clients in the same way, so I can burn a few bridges. Um, <laughs> sketches, the shoes, are a great example of that. The designs are pretty much knockoffs of bigger brands. The product quality is so-so, um, but just the branding around it, the fact that they're there, they're omnipresent on the marketplace, and they're fun, it's done a good job, kind of has proven that you can break into markets without being that best or most original. I think it's actually a sliding scale because you have a product that works adequately that is presented well, but you can also have a product that works um, less well and sells because a celebrity is attached to it mm. uh, because they are giving um, their credibility and authenticity to it and then where I think it's very important that we draw the line is where you have a product that is defective or doesn't do as it claims and um, the claims to substantiate it uh, become dangerous mm. and one of the interesting ethical dilemmas that I have in my role currently is um, I have the privilege of being in leadership if we're asked to um, be convincing to persuade about a product that doesn't do what it says we have the privilege of saying we don't need to do that we're not going to do that and it's so sad when you see these brands that genuinely had a great heritage and a great past and then have lost it like um, polaroid comes to mind they were like, genuinely a great product great brands but when they stopped making their film and start to become a licensing agency you kind of start to view all their products as uh, it's, it's not the same but it's interesting isn't it because again in, in one respect you're talking about or it feels like you're talking about nostalgia what polaroid meant to you as mm. growing up and the role it's changed to have if you look at like a, a brand like nokia who has um you know you're looking at pulping paper rubber gas masks mm. or um the ability to continue to to pivot. My old employer, WPP, um, taking a company where WPP um, was, you know, wireless plastic products. That's uh, that's very interesting. So, so things. I think brands can pivot entirely and reinvent, 
and we need to take risks, but we're very, very willing to allow a product set to take a risk. We're, we're very happy to introduce a new product or a new feature, um, especially in tech organizations. We feel very funny about the brand being played with because the emotional resonance with us is so important. And uh, that's when a dissonance comes about. I knew you for one thing, now I think you're going to be another. Um, you know, is it okay for Kodak to be reinvented um, in a completely different sector? Um, will we accept that or will we not? Mm. And how do you know when to draw the line and how far to push it? Yeah, it, well, this is it. Because again, we are accustomed to test and learn. Uh, we have the privilege as UX designers of um, implementing a feature, implement, implementing um, any kind of experience and withdrawing it again. Whereas a brand is presenting itself to the world continuously. I've had a lot of conversations recently that are about how brands can exist on platforms like TikTok, which is very much about both authenticity, but um, challenges and trends that can last hours or days. Uh, and how do you align that with your brand's purpose and how, how do you be present there? And if, if you aren't authentic in that space, uh, you can buy a lot of ad space and you'll, you'll get a lot of people watching it, but uh, the resonance that you should expect won't necessarily be there. Mm. Do you think market level plays part of this? So a brand like uh, Topshop might be able to play fast and loose with TikTok and, you know, they can make mistakes and everyone will forgive them. But a brand such as, I don't know, Gucci may not be. I mean, possibly. I think if you're, I think if we're considering it through the lens of um, how acceptable is it to be in that space for the core audience? Um, so you'll see like FMCG brands doing very well, food brands doing very well. Um, these are brands that are able to immediately, authentically play, a, have a role. So if we think about the resonance of that brand to the audience and how, what permission it has to be there, um, that's, that's definitely a valid question. So FMCG goods, uh, food brands in particular, they have a role in people's lives. Uh, especially the TikTok audience. So they're, they're going to accept that it's there. But really what's more important than that is being willing to play by their rules, um, jumping in, not standing on the edge of the pool, worried about getting wet, but throwing yourself in and being okay with that, being okay with um, the brand being teased. KFC have done a lot of work on social media recently about actually a very cheeky tone of voice, uh, which just keeps them relevant and front of mind and salient. Um, especially in periods of time when uh, they, they can't offer their core product. Mm. That's a really interesting thing. It reminds me of, I believe it was the 90s or early 2000s, KFC ran a um, a black metal advert um, to advertise the spicy hot, wherever it was, um, which was pretty extreme when you think about their major you know, brand. Absolutely. And it's disarming and it's fun and sometimes it's confusing and that can be incredibly exciting. And uh, I think, again, it comes back to the point we made earlier, which is um, at this moment in time, authenticity and vulnerability are prized very highly because we are globally all going through an experience that sees us scared and exposed. Mm. So, Grace, you've clearly got a great background of experience and work with many fantastic clients, which... Some you can, some you can't talk about. But if you could do any project, like your dream project that you'd be known for, what would you like it to be? That's, um, yeah, that's a really satisfying question. What would I like it to be? I think, so interestingly, I think um, for me, working on established products that work well is no fun. Um, I don't think I would want to work 
were um, we were just optimizing and making small changes. I'm very interested in the drive towards. Is this too noisy for you? It's a little noisy. Oh no, it's, it's perfect. Carry on. Okay. Um, I'm very interested in the drive towards um, people connecting through screens. So looking at the emergence of uh, mental health support tools, measuring tools, um, therapy. It's been very interesting looking at the practice of psychotherapy um, over the period of COVID, where normally that's a very important time for people to be in the same room together. Obviously, there are elements of privacy and trust, but also um, transferring yourself to be able to speak in therapy um, in a different space where you're removing yourself literally from the stimulus of the outside world. So um, I was very interested in, you know, Alan de Botan talks a lot about um, the limits of um, happiness through the consumption of goods and says someone who works in the advertising industry. But I think it's actually very key that our industry has pushed strongly to suggest purchasing a material good will bring joy, happiness or satisfaction. And Alan de Botan was asking, you know, if, if, you're, if you're having trouble in your marriage, you know, what's more important, fixing your marriage or buying a new pair of tennis shoes? And uh, for me, stepping away from persuading people to um, purchase and purchase smoothly and frictionlessly, and instead stepping towards people engaging in um, higher order, more significant work about themselves and their identities becomes incredibly exciting. How we use technology to support that um, and to not limit that experience. I do think it's supplementary. I don't think we should all exist online. Um, that becomes to me a really, really valid and purposeful challenge. Mm. That would be incredible. Uh, the idea of stepping away from technology and having more quality interactions together. Do you think technology can actually help us do that? Or are we using a poison to try and cure a poison? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I, I believe in, you know, Tristan Harris speaks about um, needing an ethical code, almost a Hippocratic oath when we're designing products. And we know that to be true. We know um, in the last 15 years, uh, the very nature of designing a scaled product means you'll have designed something that was compulsive and stealing away attention. Um, I think the question now is, um, how can technology supplement uh, the human condition? And at times it can bring us closer. You know, there can be real intimacy. We've experienced that now. There can also be moments of connection. You and I would not have found each other um, if it weren't for uh, established networks. Um, for us to connect, that sounds super strange and lateral. I'm talking about LinkedIn. networks. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, there's a, there's a lot of good that can be done. But I also think that um, it's very important for us to maintain our freedoms um, and our uh, intellectual and emotional space uh, to recover. I find it very interesting that when you look at a lot of um, people in leadership um, in large-scale tech organizations, their children are sitting in schools that don't have screens. Mm. I'd, I'd be really interested to know from your point of view, you know, someone who's existing in academia, how, how you connect with students and, and how you feel technology yeah, well, aid or academia is interesting because um go back to go back a thousand years and you're not university it's some guy in front of some students talking and they're writing down notes and at the end of the whatever period they have an exam fast forward to today in most 
modules, most courses, it's exactly the same. Um, when I was starting out as a lecturer, the, sort of the old school guys, professors, were telling you, you must use chalk on a board. And they were just really passionate about it. And there's a lot to be said for that. Um, my personal pref idea is education has needed a revolution for a long time, and COVID has given us that. Um, it's forced you know, the whole universities to use tools such as Microsoft Teams for remote teaching that it never would have formed. And now lessons are online. I think they're going to stay there. I don't see, I don't see any value in standing in front of someone talking to them like a thousand years ago. I think if someone's paying how many thousands to come to university, they should be having interactions with us. And it's about um, the experts in front of you working in collaboration in a way that you can't do online. So all the when we return to physical uh, teaching, hopefully soon, that's where my focus is. What can we do to give a learning experience and a human experience that is so unique can't replicate in technology? Yes, I think I think that's incredibly significant and absolutely right. And I think we're talking about beyond imparting wisdom or knowledge and the space between wisdom and knowledge uh, is also uh, holistically what that experience means to be able to be in that space and to connect with others and what you can gain from it. Even, you know, we used to design our buildings um, to signify the, the use and presence of them that mm. now. Uh, but really, it is it can be a transformative experience. Do you think this idea about um, you know, the ethics we're talking about, is that something that every design, be it for the brand or an app, can they all embody that? Or is it any small areas which are particularly ethical, like counselling? Yeah, I, I think it has to be continuous because I think what you're, um, what you're developing today, your version, um, can any product can evolve into something else. Um, and have more significance. But you yourself, as a designer, need to decide uh, what are your boundaries and ethics of what you're making. Um, and that's that's um, as valid and true if you're, you know, you may begin your career um, helping people uh, measure their electricity spend for an energy provider, and then you might be making um, games that uh, people find incredibly compulsive. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how you evolve, you yourself need to recognize the responsibility you have in your ability to create. Mm. What's your opinion of UX designers who are you know, super competitive and creative working for gambling agencies? I'm not sure if you can answer that question. Um, Sorry, okay, that base. You, you, you cut out, so okay. <laughs> not only is it controversial, but I didn't hear it. <laughs> so you get fantastic designers working for gambling agencies like Betfred. What's your opinion about that? I think we all should have our own autonomy as long, well, we should all have our own autonomy full stop. I do think it's very important that we go in with our eyes open and we recognize what we're doing. Mm. So I think it's interesting, you know, when, when designers interview at um, gambling agencies, one of the things that stops them getting hired is the question, how do you feel about gambling? And the designer or, or any any practitioner says, I have no problem with it. And if you want to be hired by an organization that um, has a gambling offering, the answer isn't, I have no problem with it. It's, I think it's thrilling and exciting. Um, I think mm -hmm. it provides relief 
and uh, is, is a, a great way to boost that serotonin and that dopamine. Um, well, I think it's a bit of fun. Uh, now, one of the most interesting things that I think is happening is uh, when you look into industries like gambling, some uh, practices are working very, very hard to look at those checks and balances to look for signs of addiction, including using you know, machine learning to identify what is an, an, an addictive move. Um, and of course, we have accountability as humans to engage in things, but we do recognize that um, willpower alone can't stop us putting our phones down, let alone can't stop us playing um, a, a compulsive game, for example, mm. or, or trading continuously um, in the financial markets. So I think it's very important that we have our choices about what we do, and I don't condemn anyone who chooses to work in those spaces because autonomy is very important. But I would definitely say it's essential to consider what you're doing and are you comfortable with what you're doing? Mm. It's like where you see these um, dark UX patterns being employed on websites and across. I'm always wondering, these tricks, do you think we can use them for good as well as evil? Well, um, tricks is the, is the clue to that statement, right? It's um, rather than persuading someone, rather than persuading the user to take an action, um, we are bumping them through that, that path to get the desired outcome. And if it's a trick, it's not that choice. Mm. I guess it relates to the thing we were talking about earlier about um, that empathy and understanding others. I'm sure we all walk through life thinking, well, I'm very self-aware, I'm aware of my actions, I'm very in control, but probably not aware of what we are not in control of, the subconscious parts that control us. Absolutely, yes, entirely. And also, um, you know, there's an old adage, you know, designed for your mother or your grandmother, someone who isn't accustomed to technology, but actually we're, we're designing for humans and um, recognizing, uh, of course, we don't know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. And there is a responsibility to that. Mm -hmm. So the obviously there's a massive area we could talk for hours about uh, the ideas of what design is and where it can go. Do you think that these are the things that other agencies have got wrong traditionally and they've been forcing the wrong kind of experience and or do you kind of feel that everything's pretty much in place i mean i think you can only tell uh how an organization or an agency is performing when you're inside it i think um i think sometimes you don't know when you're inside it as well i think the same is said for human relationships um you might you might think you know how your marriage is doing, but you're only one half of it. So um, it's a lot, I think, to ask to say um, what's going on with others or for others at any time. That sounds like a cop out. I want to be able to answer that deeply for you, but I think the, the truth is we don't know. We're just, um, you know, we're sitting, or at the moment we're not sitting in our offices, but normally we'd be sitting in an office looking across London reading someone else's social posts and reports in our industry press saying this is good and this is bad it's impossible to me mm -hmm. so what kind of skills do you feel is essential for a designer to have i think in your industry yeah absolutely I, I, well i think um in the widest possible definition of design is curiosity the interest of why is this working why is this not working uh, what happens if I pull this apart and put it back together again? And um, that insatiable curiosity, I think, has uh, built entire careers. Mm. So would that go, translate to what would happen if we tried treating 
Coca-Cola in this way, how would that work? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it can extend to the widest possible remit. Um, what would happen if uh, if we try to? So do you know, um, Coca-Cola is a really um, used drink for people who are sort of semi-pro cyclists. Mm. And really like drinking flat Coca-Cola rather than drinking certain energy drinks. It's got caffeine, it's got sugar, it tastes amazing, it works for them, it's ritualistic, it's something that's existed in their ground. Um, what would happen if we actually marketed it for that use? Do we need to market it for that use? Um, that becomes very, very interesting. Um, but I think what becomes even more interesting is um, asking, is this the best version of this product or service? Um, has this existed for so long it's been the way we always did it? Is there a better way? That reminds me of the 1980s new Coke. Yes. Well, this is it, right? A big pivot can be very dangerous. And I think that's, um, I think product and brand pivots can be terrifying. But for every new Coke, there'll be tens of thousands of examples of pivots that are so natural to us that we just accepted willingly. Mm. That they're now just what the product is known for. Back to, to Nokia. Mm. So try everything, be curious, but be prepared to backpedal if needed. Uh, or, uh, so I believe one of the most interesting things I've brought into the advertising industry is the idea that there is no such thing as um, an absolute statement, which is, you know, how we live in design thinking, but doesn't exist in advertising. In advertising, you make absolute statements, you build beautiful narratives and you convince people we've got to try this because then you have to go and make an advert, shoot the advert, present it to the public, see if it has any effect on selling a product. There's, a, there's, a, there's no chance for small pivots. However, um, having a hypothesis, trying it, and not seeing it as a, a failure or a success, but seeing as more information gives ultimate freedom. Um, and sometimes those hypotheses have to be on, for advertising, that might be a campaign over a year, broadcasting different content over a year at huge cost. So you do have to try to get it right. But there is always on a long enough timeline, a loop to learn and refine. Um, New Coke would have taught Coca-Cola um, that change isn't something that their change of their core product isn't something their users are ready to accept. And also the value of the color of the product um, and uh, even the taste of the product. Mm. So it's, you know, it's interesting. You can't you can't switch those things on and off until you know them. Mm. So, for if Coke, the hard lesson they learned was, don't change the core product. Have a range of products. I was wondering, in your career, what do you feel has been the hardest lesson to learn? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's probably about. Um, looking at the combination of evidence and instinct and weighing those together. So we've talked about conscious and unconscious elements of, of how we think and what we're aware of. We've talked about anecdotal research um, and expertise. Uh, so um, how often have we stood in a room with someone, uh, usually a colleague who will say, I'm the client. I know I'm the user. I'm the client. I represent mm. my sample of one is absolute. Um, but then also, it was interesting working in scaled commerce platforms to recognize you'll do a multivariant test 
And the best performing um, result doesn't tell you why. It just tells you that it's performing. You must determine why and therefore say, actually, there's more we can do. Um, you know, is, uh, is this way of presenting a price point actually uh, the least cluttered and involves the, le the least mental maths? And that's why it's performing when actually it could be improved even more. It's just the others require too much tax of our thought process. We don't know. And so combining those two elements took me a very long time. I started off entirely instinctual and then I moved entirely quant, like many of us did as we had access to, mm -hmm. to data and pattern recognition, signal versus noise. And I've now come back around again and recognizing it's both an art and a science. But again, that becomes very freeing when everything is a test rather than everything is something um, you're, you're betting your lunch on. Mm. So one of the features that scares me a bit is this artificial intelligence that's driving so much of uh, the interactions we have online in that it's data, it's algorithms, it's stats driving it. And we assume the algorithm is right. Um, but if the data has some flaws in, that's just me propagating problems in the future. Yeah, and it's written by a group of people who tend to look and sound a lot like one another. Mm. So that um, bias, whether it's implicit or um, unconscious, still remains. Mm. So one thing I've been reminded of really heavily this summer, this year, is, you know, I am like a cis white male in a very middle class, comfortable area in one of the rich countries in the world. I will never know what it's like to be a poor black kid in some kind of suburb in America. Um, I just can't begin to imagine it. And being aware that you don't know doesn't fill any gaps, but you go, okay, there's going to be a lot more question marks, a lot more pauses because of that. I'm not sure AI has that reflection yet. No, definitely not. And and what you're talking about as an individual, it seems, is um, recognizing uh, that you will always benefit from the patriarchy without necessarily mm. upholding it. You will always benefit from white privilege. And that in itself actually is the first step to saying, okay, well, what can I do to help people who don't have those benefits? Oh, 100%. And, and if you're a designer, um, you have a surprising amount of influence and power. Mm. So... I'm going to finish off with this question. It kind of leads on really nicely from this idea of uh, influence and power and empathy. What do you think we could do in design and advertising and UX to make the world a better place? Continue to take jobs that specifically are about consciously making the world a better place. Continuing to say no to jobs that have gorgeous, ridiculous pay packages and very shiny brands and business titles to them. And that's very easy to say. That is spoken from a true position of privilege, being established in my career and being able to say no to a job in the first place. But I think a lot of what we can do is to consciously be saying, uh, everything I make needs to have a purpose and it needs to be significant within the world. Less noise, um, more significance, more purpose. And... Uh, I would also say if you have the capacity and the bandwidth, it doesn't just have to be your paid work, volunteer, do something there. And that can be a very good balance. You know, if you need to, if you need to work um, building a product or a service that um, isn't damaging, but doesn't change the world, then perhaps you want to give you know, 
10 hours a month to doing something different. And all of that, you know, is very cumulative. Oh. It can really make a difference. Oh, thank you, Grace Francis. That's a really beautiful way to wrap things up. Um, is there anything that you'd like to um, say to people listening and to if they want to contact you? Yeah, I'd say, um, you know, design is essential and it's really hard. Uh, if you're interested in talking about uh, different stimulus, different kinds of books, different ways of working, uh, you can find me online. I'm always interested in talking about uh, what makes good design. And uh, there you go. There's my next chance. <laughs> pinging accordingly to take me back <laughs> <laughs> so grace thank you very much for your time it's been a pleasure talking to you amazing thank you